LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, author Eric Barker teaches our curator, Daniel Pink, how to make friends, disarm marital conflicts, and spot liars. If you've been listening to this show for a while, then you've probably heard us talk about the Grant Study. Back in 1938, scientists decided to do something that seemed simple on the face of it, but which turned out to have a profound influence on how we understand human happiness. These researchers decided they were going to document the physical and emotional health of 268 Harvard sophomores for the rest of their lives. Who thrived and who floundered? Who succumbed to vice and who triumphed over it? Most importantly, who lived long, happy lives? Here's what they learned. The best predictor of happiness in life isn't how much money you make or how famous you are. It has nothing to do with your IQ or your genes. As the study's lead researcher, George Valiant, put it, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships. When he heard that, author Eric Barker was filled with despair because his relationships were not great. But that despair soon turned into excitement. You may not be able to change your genes or your IQ, but you can change your relationships. They're malleable. Eric went deep on the art and science of relationship building, and the results can be found in his new book, Plays Well With Others. In addition to being a bestseller, it was chosen by our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, as one of the eight best books of the year. And today, one of those curators, Dan Pink, is going to sit down with Eric to talk about why we all need to tend to our relationships if we want to live healthy, productive, and meaningful lives. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next Big Idea Club conversation with one of our great selections. It's a book called Plays Well with Others. The surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. And the author is with us today. His name is Eric Barker, and he's a great American. I've known him for a few years, and well, we're going to get to know him a little bit and talk about some of the really cool ideas in this book. Eric, welcome. It's great to be here, Dan. So, Eric, before we get into the substance of the book itself, let's talk a little bit about you. I think it's it's interesting sort of how writers get to a particular topic. So take us through sort of where'd you grow up and what was the trajectory of your early life? I was born in Philadelphia, raised in South Jersey, went to school in Philadelphia, and uh, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood after I graduated from college. So it's it's always funny to me talk, you know, talking to other authors because some have never really professionally written before. Some were journalists before. You you were a speechwriter before, you know, and uh, it's it's like for me, I I came from the land of of uh, action movies and animation. <laughs> so when you were a kid, did you want to be a screenwriter? When you did you want to be like a a movie person when you were growing up? Yeah, well, I, when I was in high school, is when I first started thinking about writing, and then at one point it 
dawned on me that somebody actually writes these movies and that I could actually do that. And that was it was a very big step. And so it was in college that I realized that, you know, hey, let me let me see how the screenwriting thing works. Now, you went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is not notorious for its film program. So <laughs> tell us about tell us about that. What did you do there? What did you what did you study there? And, and how did you make your way from that part of Philadelphia to the mean streets of Hollywood? I majored in philosophy undergrad, which doesn't really have sense. a clear direction afterwards anyway. I think initially I was going to find a mountaintop and contemplate joblessness. And so like, <laughs> it was it was while I was in school, a friend of mine started working in Hollywood and he was like, hey, you know, why don't you come out for the summer? So I did two kind of pseudo internships, like not formal. And that's how I started meeting people. And that's how I was like, Hey, yeah, you know, this would be this would be really cool. But no, there was no formal pipeline at all. It was this hodgepodge, but oddly it kind of worked out. And so I want to come to the screenwriting here in a moment, but I also want to say that, you know, a hundred years ago I, I started talking about how we needed to merge these two degrees, the MBA and the MFA. Yeah. And lo and behold, you're like one of the few people on the planet who has both. <laughs> how did that happen? Tell us how you got to get an MBA. And an MFA. It was strange. It wasn't at all intentional. Uh, but yeah, I graduated. I graduated Penn. I moved out. I started writing. Um, I got lucky pretty fast. You know, I got an agent. Like within a few years, I had a couple movies made. But like uh, my friend had done this awesome program at UCLA, where the entire because it's in LA because it has strong connections to the film industry. The MFA program, that's called the Producers Program, uh, is like all taught by industry professionals. All the classes are 7 to 10 p.m. So your classes, your classes in Hollywood legal is taught by the head of Sony Legal. Your head in producing is taught by somebody with an Oscar. And so it was really great. And it was a fantastic program where I knew I'd meet people and I'd learn a lot more about the industry. That was my MFA. Then after a few more years in Hollywood, ups and downs, crazy stuff. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should maybe I should try something else. That was the MBA. And then ended up I did my intern my MBA internship at Nintendo and I went to video games for a few years. But it was actually in the MBA program that I took a class on negotiation that exposed me to a lot of social science. And that's actually where the rumblings of my blog began because I really got fascinated by that. And it was after I graduated into the post-2008 crisis uh, that I started my blog. And so in 2009, I graduated my MBA, I started my blog, and it was very funny because I was kind of balancing these two things. And eventually I left my job in video games to to pursue the blog full time, which which led to the books. Right. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating. I mean, I think it's a really interesting story because, I mean, there's no way like, first of all, if you were go back to your screenwriting days, you would not have ever architected a story that began in South Jersey, winded its way <laughs> through the leafy campus of University of Pennsylvania, a detour into Hollywood and the UCLA MFA program. Then an MBA program and a stint in video games, followed by some blogging that turned it into these great books. So I, I think it's helpful, especially for some of our younger listeners, to hear the trajectory of successful people like you and recognize how profoundly and deeply nonlinear it is um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and how one has to be opportunistic 
about those kinds of things. So and and, and risk taking. So, you know, you got up, you got your Ivy League degree when everybody is going into finance and consulting and you pulled up stakes and, you know, went to Southern California to type, um, <laughs> you know, during the you know, there were probably were not a lot of people in your MBA class who came out of that MBA program and started blogs. So I think it's super interesting, and I'm glad to hear that story. So, so you have this blog, super successful. You have your newsletter, you know, blog barking up the wrong tree, newsletter barking up the wrong tree. Uh, it's one of my favorite newsletters of all time. It's massively successful. You have a giant audience. It's just so profoundly and, and, and well done. That leads you into these books. This is your second book. And here you decided to take on this, this topic of relationships. Okay. So this is a book about relationships and a lot of the kind of social science that undergirds relationships. Why a book on relationships, Eric? I mean, two reasons, uh, actually three reasons. Uh, first and foremost, uh, when I was writing Barking Up the Wrong Tree, my first book, you know, it was all about kind of the myth busting, the maxims of success we all grew up with. And, you know, Freud said, you know, life is all about work and love. And so to me, they kind of bookend each other that my first book was, you know, about like work, career, success. The second was about relationships. The second reason was relationships were not something that I was really good at. I think that's part of the reason why mm. I was fascinated by it. And I was kind of curious on a personal level. But then what was very strange was after the book deal closed, literally uh, two weeks later, California locked down for the pandemic. And I was like, OK, I'm not the only one who's probably going <laughs> to need this book. You know, it's I, I was thinking, like, I hope this isn't too indulgent. I mean, I know people are important. I know people need them, but this is kind of like a personal journey. And then it's like, OK, this isn't this is a journey we're all on because we're all going to need like the relationship defibrillator when this thing is over. And what's the third reason? Oh, I know. Uh, number one was uh, Freud. Number two was my personal interest. Number three was the pandemic. Oh, OK. Okay, got it, got it, got it. All right, I had conflated, I had conflated two and three because, as you know, I, I'm a devout uh, Orthodox Trinitarian. So if you <laughs> tell me you're going to have a list of three and you only give me two, I am not going to let you off the hook. And, um, so, but I think that's interesting because I think it's true for a lot of writers that that at some level all research is me search, and so that we're trying to we're trying to figure these things out. But I think one of the things that's interesting, Eric, about your book is that at some level the word relationships. I don't want to say that it's soft, but it's a little softer than, say, work and success and those kinds of things. And yet you make a pretty good case in this book that it really matters. Tell, tell us a little bit about some how, how much relationships matter to our both emotional and physical well-being. Yeah, it was crazy to see that some of the research literally that in terms of health, you know, you've got like everything from the grant study at Harvard, which, you know, longitudinal study that followed, you know, a group of men for their entire lives. And George Valiant, who led the study for, for most of the time it was there, mm -hmm. he was interviewed. Here's a study that had lasted decades. And interviewers were like, what did, what did you learn? And instead of giving some long diatribe of the, you know, warehouse full of insights, he came back with the only thing that matters in life are your relationships to other people. And he found correlates in terms of, you know, health, happiness, so many areas. And in terms of both health and happiness, one study showed that relationships are, you know, second only to genetics. It's really, really critical. And we give it lip service, but I don't think it's something that we pay a lot of attention to. And then beyond that, 
I think relationship book, it's mm, it's kind of right up there with the word infomercial sometimes. It's not really <laughs> it's not really taken as seriously as we should. The grants that I think what's what's to me compelling about that is not only the effective relationships on our overall well-being, but on our physical health. Okay. That is, it matters to like our cardiovascular health, uh, yeah. to our endocrine health, to the various biological systems in our body are improved when we have healthy relationships. The other thing about it that I think is that the value of the book, going to one of the, the factoids that you gave, is that our relationships are second only to our genetics in our well-being. So CRISPR notwithstanding, it's very <laughs> difficult to alter our genetics. But we can do something about our relationships. Now, give me one more beat on this because I think there's a, a a converse side. I think there's a flip side to this relationships, which is you mentioned some of the research. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you mentioned some of the research on loneliness. Uh, a couple of years ago, we selected uh, Vivek Murthy's book yeah. uh, together about the epidemic of loneliness. Give us a little bit of a – for those who haven't read that book, um, give us a little bit of texture on – on loneliness and the deleterious effects that it has on people. John Cacioppo was the leading researcher on loneliness. And you know what he found was the elevation of stress hormones caused by loneliness is the equivalent of a physical attack. Like loneliness is like getting beaten up. It's staggering. I mean, every, I, I'm exaggerating, but not by much, but like, you know, it's correlated with basically almost every negative health outcome you can imagine. Yeah. Like, and which is terrifying because I was in pandemic lockdown writing about loneliness by myself, living by myself, not seeing friends, reading about how terrible this is for you. And I'm just like, oh, I'm like I wrote in the book, you know, I was I'm surprised that like insurance companies don't mandate that you like spend more time with friends. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea. But it was it was funny. I read Vivek Murthy's book and it was one thing was really interesting was he hit on something that I thought was critical here which was the issue of loneliness is horrible for you. However, solitude is actually protective against loneliness. And that distinction is really critical because what Cacioppo found was that loneliness isn't about proximity. It's not about merely mm -hmm. physically spending time with other people. Basically, he found that lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely right. people do. You know, and we've all felt lonely in a crowd. You can relate to that. Exactly. And loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. So if you feel bad about your relationships and you're alone, you know, that's loneliness, that's bad. If you feel good about your relationship, but you have time alone, that's solitude and it's a positive. I, I think that's such an important distinction. And and you mentioned it, you you cite some data in the book, which I think is often presented as an alarming problem, but you put it, I think, in better context. I, I'm, I, forgive me, Eric, I'm not going to get this slightly wrong, but something like one in seven Americans lives alone. Is that about right? Roughly. It's been increasing. Like The numbers have just been up and to the right. But a, a hundred years ago, it was close to like one in a hundred. Yeah. And, and, and the craziest thing is we're not even, the United States is, is not even number one on that. A lot of European countries and the Nordic countries, the majority of households are one person. So this has just yeah. been increasing and there's really strong negative effects there. We don't have kind of the community to support the people around that we used to. And when you combine that with a lot of the reasons, like Faye Alberti, uh, who teaches at the University of York, did this fascinating research where she looked back historically 
And the word lonely didn't used to have the negative connotation that it did before the 19th century. She exaggerates a little bit and basically says that loneliness didn't exist before the 19th century because we were all embedded in a group, a religion, a tribe, a nation, something. So we felt connected to other people on an emotional level, even if we weren't physically proximate to them. And now with the rise of individualism since the 19th century and the breakdown of a lot of those institutions, if we don't have those connections to friends and family locally, we also don't have those big picture tribal connections that always make, made us feel we were a part of something. Yeah. And I wanna, when we talk about friendship here in a moment, I want to come back to that idea of you use the word embedded, how an embedded set of relationships is more nourishing than a kind of disaggregated set of relationships, even if it's the same number. Yeah. Uh, I, thought was a, I thought that was a super, super very, very interesting point uh, in your book. Okay. So here's what we know. We know that relationships matter deeply to our physical health and our well-being. They matter as much as, uh, uh, you know, that matters second only to genetics. Their relationships are something that we can control. Uh, we know that we have from Vivek's book and some of your book, a serious problem with, with loneliness, which is not only about people living alone or solitude, but it's about people feeling disconnected, people feeling that they lack something that you say toward the end of the book, a lack of sense of belonging. So let's go to start out talking about the two sort of, to me, sort of two main kinds of relationships that people have in their lives, friends and romantic relationships. So companion relationships and romantic relationships. Let's start with friendship. I mean, friendship makes us happier than any other relationship. Sorry, spouses. Uh, the interesting thing about friends is there's this, there's this interesting kind of aspect to it where you know, friendship is kind of the the like the stepchild of relationships. There's no formal institution backing it. You know, it's like ma marriages are enforced by law. Your your relationship with your employer has a contract. Uh, if you don't take care of your kids, the 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 state is going to do something about that. But your friends, there's no institution behind it. So friendship doesn't get the attention, the support. No, nobody goes to a. We go to a marriage therapist. You can go to a child therapist. There's no friend therapist, and that is a weakness in terms of friendship doesn't get kind of the, the attention, the dedication. But the flip side is that that's one of the reasons why friendship is so powerful is it's never an obligation, is that your, friend, your friends Great are point. only there because you like them and they like you. It's 100% voluntary. So therefore, its fragility proves its purity. So we, we get so much from it because the only reason they're there is because you want them to be. So yeah. it stays honest. And because of that is Daniel Kahneman's research that shows, you know, friendship increases subjective well-being more than any other relationship. It's something that I had not thought about, this idea that we don't have uh, the force of law or the force of religion or state action behind friendships. They are, you know, in, they're entirely unregulated. They're, they're sort of the, the Bitcoin of relationships. <laughs> right? um, so they are um, probably not the best analogy the idea. <laughs> Um, and so friendship, friendship is deeply, deeply meaningful. And it's, it's interesting you say that because in some other, uh, the last book that I wrote about, uh, about regret and what people regretted, uh, uh, one of the things that people regret the most are uh, not reaching out and not maintaining connections. And 
they end up being so much about friendship, not so much about family or anything like that, so much about friendships and, and, and the pain that people feel when these relationships sometimes drift apart. Now, so give us some guidance here because this book is like your, like your newsletter and blog. It's chock-a-block with some good uh, news you can use tips. Give us some guidance based on the science about how do you, how do you form a friendship? Like how do friendships form? Well, it was, it was interesting because taking that Mythbusters approach, the first thing I looked at was the, the reference that most people use, which is Dale Carnegie. And the funny thing is, Dale Carnegie wrote his book long before the advent of social science research, but yeah. the majority of what he said actually got proved out. The, the only thing he was, he was wrong about was he, was he talked about seeing things from the other person's perspective, and we're actually really bad at that. Uh, Nicholas Epley's research at University of Chicago showed like we we're not good at, at, at reading other people's minds and coming at it. But everything else that Carnegie talked about was, you know, really true was, you know, paying sincere compliments, focusing on similarity. You know, it's like all of these things have benefits. The only thing is Carnegie wrote his book largely for business relationships, for contacts. Yeah. And there's a number of lines in there. You can see it's a very strategic book, you know, about getting things from people and influencing people. So it, it really doesn't get to, you know, the deeper levels of friendship that that we want to. It, it get, it'll get you to the acquaintance phase. You know, what's really critical in terms of building deep relationships, the ones that last, like you said, the ones that people regret when they lose, you know, are we, we need to send and look for costly signals. Boom. This is such an important point. So let's, let's give us a, so, so you talk about friendship depends on costly signals. Tell us about that. Cause I think that's a huge takeaway from this book. Yeah. I mean, basically how do you know if somebody's just, you know, a callous manipulator, you know, trying to get stuff from you, you know, just trying to act like a friend is costly signals. A principle from economics is the idea of, of signals that are expense, quote unquote, expensive to send. And, that's what we should show. That's what we should look for. The first is time, you know, because time is always scarce. If I if I spend an hour talking to you every day, I can't do that for more than 24 people and I got to sleep. So time is scarce. Scarcity means costly. So time is really critical. And one study from Notre Dame showed they, they tracked 8 million phone calls and they found that people that stay in touch every two weeks those were the relationships that were more likely to last. So touching base is really critical, spending time when people need you. And the second is vulnerability, is mm -hmm. opening up. Because if I tell you things that could hurt me, that could make me look bad, that could be used against me, that is a strong demonstration of trust. And Diego Gambetta is a researcher in Italy who looked at it. And the best way to build trustful relationships is to first demonstrate trust. It's easy to say, but to actually tell people, here's things that are embarrassing. Here's things I might not want to be public. That says, I trust you by doing it. And very often people will reciprocate. Getting back to what we talked about earlier, there are major health implications of this, where Robert Garfield at University of Pennsylvania found that not opening up, not being vulnerable, increases the chance of a heart attack and doubles the chance that that, that heart attack will be lethal. We need to kind of like, release some of the PSI on, on the, the stress, the problems we're dealing with. And we do that by opening up to others. Yeah. And, and I, I think that this, this idea of disclosure and vulnerability is, is, is fascinating because it is potentially costly. 
if I were to reveal to somebody something that I'm not proud of, something that I did wrong, something that makes me look bad, it's a risk because that is potentially costly. And you described, give us one beat on this kind of, almost this kind of choreography that goes on in friendship where you, you don't divulge everything no. all at once. That's too costly. Yeah, You make a little small investment that's reciprocated with this. Tell us about that. Yeah, basically, like don't confess to any murders up front. Make it incremental. This is research by Daniel Hrushka, which showed that basically it's like start small, build, you know, start small, wait for people to reciprocate. If they do escalate, this is actually a mild formula, you know, for building deeper friendships is say something that's kind of silly, say something that's small. And, you know, if they reciprocate, graduate that. Like I, in the book, I talk about the scary rule. If it scares you a little bit, that's a good sign that this would be something worth you know, opening up about. And if you incrementally increase it in that way, this is powerful. Uh, Arthur Aaron you know, did research and he made people feel like lifelong friends in under an hour just by having people go back and forth, revealing things about themselves you know, on an increasing, increasing the deepness of it. And uh, two of the uh, research associates that he had on it ended up getting married. So, so this is smart advice. So if you want to create a friendship, build a friendship, you want to uh, transmit costly signals, time, devote time, uh, and vulnerability. And that vulnerability is sort of uh, this kind of incremental disclosure and counter disclosure and so forth that can unify. And you say, if it's, you know, the, your scary rule was like, if it, if it feels uncomfortable, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, you talk about sort of maintaining contact within, maintaining, I think what you just mentioned a moment ago, the two-week yeah. kind of check-in rule. So you you want to nurture that. So so there is, I think one of the interesting things about the way you've written this is that it suggests, I think sometimes we have this idea that relationships just blossom, mm-hmm. you know, like the prairie grass in my backyard after a Washington, D.C. rain, when in <laughs> fact, it's much more, we have to bring a lot more intention to it. So costly signals and then this two-week rule. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Let's talk about work, friendship at work. Um, more important than we realize, huh? Oh, really critical. You know, it's like people who had more friends at work. You know, research showed that they, they were happier with their life. Not happier at work. They were happier with their life. And people exactly. who were friends with their manager, you know, it was a dramatic increase, increase in workplace satisfaction. We draw a boundary there that's sort of artificial. You know, our brains don't 
draw a distinction between contacts and friends. And it's really important to feel something organic there and to feel that devotion. Otherwise, it's going to be it's going to be really artificial. This point about boundaries on friendships is also really interesting. I think it comes out in a number of different ways in, in the book. So not only this boundary between our work selves and our and our self selves, you know, where you say just as you said a moment ago that our that's that having a friend at work increases our life satisfaction. Yeah. You also talk about a couple of interesting things, which is there's some research showing that when we become good enough friends with people, the boundary between ourselves can dissolve. Explain that. Yeah. So it was funny. I was looking for, there, there was a crazy problem I had writing the book in the sense that when I was writing about romantic relationships, the amount of research is staggering. You know, it's like because of marriage therapists, there's a whole institution here that has been looking for answers to these problems. With friendship, I had the exact opposite, which is there is no <laughs> institution. There's not much research. Like, so I was really scrambling to look for decent stuff at first. And I actually ended up turning towards ancient philosophy to, as like a, a start. And Aristotle has this great, you know, quote where he says, a friend is another self. You know, yeah. that, that makes for a fantastic quote on Pinterest. But I was like, this isn't science. And then I kept looking and actually it had been proved out by the literature that Basically, that when we become close to someone, when we feel empathic towards someone, that basically our self-definition and our definition of that person starts to overlap like a Venn diagram. Yeah. And increasingly so, the closer you are to someone, the more the overlap. And this was tested pretty rigorously. When, when you put women in an MRI and mention their friend's name, their best friend's name, the areas for self-processing in the brain light up. When you ask people about their close friends, it's like, is this personality trait true of you or true of them? The closer you are to the person, the longer the lag in the answer, because you actually, your brain has to disentangle you from them to say, is that me or is that, you know, it's, it's really crazy. But those are the kind of another self, you know, sort of friendships that, that we're going for. Right. The other thing is that this is, um, after all these years, y your ability to quote Aristotle is a sign that your Ivy League education is finally, finally, after a couple Ma of decades. Mom would be proud. Mom would be yes. happy. Philosophy major. See, Mom, I, I, I know who Aristotle <laughs> is, and I can quote him and then connect it. And then my liberal arts education allows me to connect it to some fMRI uh, research. So there you go. Money Absolutely. well spent. Um, <laughs> But I, I do think this area of, of boundaries is really interesting, sort of like how bounded ourselves are, both in terms of our roles that we play in our lives and with other people. Uh, one last point on this, which I think is connected, is, is you talk about relationships, you used the word earlier, embedded, yeah. and the idea that friendships that are embedded in something that are part of a bigger community are actually more nourishing. Uh, I did a pretty bad job of sort of explaining that, so explain it better. No, it was it was really interesting in terms of, you know, in, in one section of the book, I talk about friendship and the other section I talk about community. Yeah. And there's this interesting distinction here because we I think community is really broken down. Friendships broken down a little bit as well. But what's really powerful is this idea that one off friendships, you have five friends and they don't know each other and they're sort of this one on one friendship. 
That's fulfilling. That's great. But it's not as powerful as when you, your friends know each other. When your friends know each other, now you're taking that step from friendship to community. And exactly. there's a powerful increase both in well-being, but also the feeling of support. Because yeah. now if you share something with five friends separately and they don't know each other, you know, maybe they're helpful. But once f- friends know each other and you say, I'm feeling down, I'm having problems, your friends can coordinate to help you. That just adds this an entire another level. You know, this, this word's a little abused, but it's synergy. You know, there really is this kind of two plus two does equal five when all of a sudden your friends can work together to take you out, make you feel better, to help you find a new job. That ability to coordinate isn't there when they don't know each other. So we see how friendship and then community is really a whole nother level and there are added advantages. So you have five friends who don't know each other and then five friends who do know each other. To me, for whatever it's worth, that I started thinking of like our brains yeah. and how our brains are integrated in that way. And maybe there's something in the way that we think that finds that more evolutionarily ad- advantageous. Okay, so let's shift from friends to romantic relationships and let's begin with something. I'll show one of my many, many pet peeves. People who say, oh, my spouse is my best friend. God bless you if that's the case. I, I just, I, I, I find that, I don't, I, I don't, I don't love that. And, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm apparently not alone. <laughs> no, uh, it, there's some, there's some, there's some national differences there. Tell us about that. There was, there was huge variability. Uh, you know, they, one study in the United States, you know, double digit percentage of people who said their spouse is their best friend. And, uh, I think it was in the, in Mexico city, they surveyed people and the answer was zero. You know, it's like that, <laughs> that that's not required. You know, it's like friendship and romantic relationships, you know, are distinct. And we might be better off in some ways if we realize that distinction. Friendship is a big part of it. John Gottman, the leading researcher on romantic relationships, does say that, you know, over the course of a long-term romantic relationship, the friendship is the critical part to focus on. However, it is only part. They are not the same. Right. Tell us a little bit more about Gottman, because in this realm, it's, I think it's important at some level to know who he is, why he matters, and some of the things that he he, he found. Because it seems like even though there's a huge amount of research in relationships, a lot of roads lead back to him. Oh, absolutely. The, the critical thing that's fascinating about John Gottman is that, you know, with so much of you know, early days of psychology, early days of all of this, it was very, you know, look at Freud, it was very speculative. And with romance, you know, we, we have a lot of, we have the desire to have more of a narrative, you know, more, a little more magic. We, we appreciate that. John Gottman has a math background. John Gottman was right. a mathematician, like hardcore. And so he really brought to the study of romantic relationships a level of scientific rigor that just had not been seen before and just went to extreme lengths to be able to isolate those variables. He has a love lab where literally couples will move into an apartment you know, that is just wired with, you know, cameras, audio, everything. He did tests, you know, he had people hooked up for blood pressure, hormones, everything to just see all of the minutiae, what was going on in couples interactions, you know, over the course of days together, not like, you know, a a 15 minute study and getting all of this data. So it just gave, gave us all this like rigorous level of analysis that hadn't been seen before. So he is undoubtedly the number one guy in the field. 
if you had to pick sort of Gottman's greatest hits, like if you had a if you have the Gottman playlist on Spotify, what are the what are the first two tracks like of what Gottman found out? Would I you mean, say some of the stuff he did looking at video? I mean, he he found some, some staggering stuff and news you can use uh, in the sense that just by listening to the first three minutes of a couple's argument, he could predict the ending with ninety six percent accuracy. Basically, he just saw again and again in these studies that if it starts out, you know, harsh, it's going to end harsh. That was really critical. Other things he found was, you know, his four horsemen, you know, the four things that predict doom, which were criticism, stonewalling, defensiveness and contempt. Those four things predict divorce like 81 percent of the time. And it was really fascinating to sort of disentangle the first one, criticism. You know, we think, oh, couples complaining a lot. Complaining isn't a problem. You know, what's what's a problem is criticism. The distinction being complaining is to say, here's an issue. Criticism is to say, here's an issue and you're at fault and you're a bad person and it's due to your fundamental personality. And so to realize that those four things, you know, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling and contempt were really predictive of divorce. That was powerful. The other big, big uh, Gottman insight that I would point to is Gottman rose to fame on the issue that by just listening to a couple for five minutes with 90 plus percent accuracy, he could predict whether or not they'd be divorced in five years. And the way he does that isn't some really mathematical, crazy algorithm. He asks the couple to tell their story. And by, if it's a story that celebrates the struggles and moves upward, that is a very positive sign. And if it's a, a story that sounds a lot more negative and emphasizes, it focuses on the negative, that's a really bad sign. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I, with, for, to me, the, what, what, real, what I find really compelling in some of the Gottman research is, is this notion of contempt and how incredibly toxic that that can be. I mean, if you have contempt within a romantic relationship, it's, I agree with him that it's essentially over. He described it as sulfuric acid for love. Exactly. Exactly. So it's really noxious. I think it's super interesting. And yet there is some evidence though, that in our romantic relationships that are, that endure, I don't mean to diss the friendship part of romantic relationships, because there is a sort of a trajectory of sorts, isn't there? And how um, very healthy romantic relationships will move. Tell us about that. I mean, roughly, you know, after 18 months, a lot of the big explosive uh, romantic feelings tend to die down. There is kind of a a, uh, romantic entropy, you know, of sorts. And usually that's okay. Usually that's a movement from, you know, the more romantic forms of love to what's called companionate love. Exactly. But the other thing is, you know, you can keep those romantic feelings alive. The issue is that people think, oh, well, when we were first dating, we, we were in love. So we did all these exciting things together. But actually that relationship works both directions, which is you fell in love because you did exciting things together. We, we have this, there's emotional contagion is what they call it in psychology. Basically that whatever environment we're in, we tend to associate the feelings we have with the person we're with. So if you keep doing fun, exciting stuff, you can keep those more thrilling, excited, you know, feelings for your partner. When we settle into too many Netflix and pizza Fridays, you know, that, that, that tends to die down. And there, there were studies where they had couples they had one cohort do go on pleasant dates, and they had another couple go on exciting dates. 
an exciting one, hands down. It really boosted their happiness. That is truly, I mean, because we want to bring this back to me, of course, truly one of my <laughs> one of my margin notes is I have, and the reason I remember this is that I showed it to my wife, which was excitement. And then I put like greater than like the greater than sign. Yeah pleasantness and um and then also just like excitement and novelty and how uh continuing to do those things actually is extraordinarily healthy and i, I did i actually had a conversation with my wife about that based on what I, what i read in here and based on that little mathematical rendering of this complex point so and yet in our romantic relationships we don't always get along so but you have some advice on how to argue better how I mean, first and foremost is like those first three minutes, you know, it's like if, if it starts harsh, it's going to end harsh. You know, it's like take a deep breath, pause. You know, it's like if you started out talking about the issue, not criticizing the person, that is a fantastic start. The other thing Gottman found, because the Gottman's Four Horsemen is, has gotten a lot of publicity and yeah. that's great because it's true. But there's there's a there's an escape clause there. There's another aspect to it which is that plenty of couples have one or two, they've got a couple horsemen riding around. And that does not necessarily spell doom because of what he calls repair, which is maybe you are expressing more criticism. Maybe you do stonewall. But in the midst of an argument, if you take a step back metaphorically and make a joke, laugh, hold their hand, say something nice, you can undo some of the negative that is done by those. We, we, we talk a lot about compassion, but the best use of compassion is in the midst of an argument. Couples who show more compassion and sensitivity during an argument, you know, have have less volatile arguments and they have them less often. Right. So there's some some really I think some really, really good takeaways there. Beware Gottman's Four Horsemen, which are um, criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling and contempt. Go for excitement over pleasantness, particularly as a relationship goes on. Uh, I, I never thought about it this way either, this idea that the, the causal arrow runs both ways on the newness and the excitement. Yeah. And then, uh, so so go for excitement um, as much, if not more than pleasantness. Um, and then show compassion in the midst of an argument. So I hope my wife is listening to this. <laughs> um, so let's... Um, you also have some good advice here, and we'll go through this a little bit faster. Uh, you also have some good advice on sizing people up, sizing people up. And and I find that this there's some very, very good stuff on here. So, for instance, let's talk about first impressions. There's the old line, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And so, is that true? Do we care about that? Are first impressions meaningful? And and are they are they useful gauges for us of when we assess potential friends or potential romantic partners or potential colleagues? There's definitely a germ of truth to that in the sense that when we're talking with someone who we know, our ability to to read their mind, to know what's going on, to kind of intuit where they're coming from, we're not very good at that. That's that's roughly with strangers, we're at, at roughly 20% accuracy, with friends, 30%, with spouses, 35%, which basically means two-thirds of the time, whatever you think is on your spouse's mind, you're wrong. But what's it's incredible. It's, this is the this is the Epley research is, that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. This is Epley. Now Here's where things take an interesting twist, and that is when we're first meeting someone and they're making a first impression, we're actually surprisingly accurate. About 70% of the time, we size people's global personality traits up pretty accurately, and they would 
they would match, you know, that person, they would match what others think. But again, 70%, if, if your kid brought home all D's, you wouldn't be too thrilled. So, you know, 30% of the time we're wrong. So we're good. But here's the double-edged sword of first impressions. And that is, we are right, that we're right more often than we're wrong, you know, a lot. However, we're, once we're wrong, confirmation bias kicks in. Once we've made up our first impression, now our brains are not objective scientists looking for the truth. Our brains are lawyers vigorously defending the positions we hold, looking for things to confirm what we already believe. So if somebody makes a bad first impression, they can get stuck because we're, we're you know, the, 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 the store that updates our beliefs is not open for business. And it's right. very, very difficult. And that leads to continuing problems because for us, if we meet somebody for the first time, they don't make a good impression. If we have the option, what might we do? Not hang out with them anymore. You know, so our negative impressions are always going to be less accurate than our positive impressions. Your positive impressions, you see them again, you get the chance maybe to update your beliefs. So you're getting a bigger sample size versus negative impressions. You, it might be somebody who's having a bad day and they're not going to get a yeah. second chance. Well, do you think we should give is, is the lesson of that that we should give people those second chances? Absolutely. I mean, we should we should you know be cautious, but it's like we should we should give people that second chance because otherwise there's there's no appeal. And by the same token, the other big takeaway from this is to think about your first impressions, the ones that you make, because as we see, people are going to lock onto those. And it's going to be really hard to correct any errors they have about you once confirmation bias kicks in. What are one or two tips you have for either conveying a better first impression or for more accurately interpreting the first impressions of others? I mean, for, for more accurately interpreting, you know, most of that is unconscious. You know, the, the, the truth is that it's like if you look at the research on thin slicing, people can watch a video of a teacher teaching a class for five minutes without sound. and you know, often predict how competent a teacher that is. The The issue we have really is confirmation bias. The issue we have is we have to realize that the the verdicts that we're making are not final. So the war, it's less about, you know, kind of the Rosetta Stone of trying to read people's body language. And it's a lot more about going, oh, they're a jerk. Okay, I'm getting the feeling they're a jerk. Let me Let me test this theory before I immediately go with my intuition let me pound on this a little bit. Let me ask them another question. Let's change the conversation. Let me see if my theory, you know, you know, can be proved wrong. Yeah. So that's that's a good segue into something else that I wanted to talk about, which is first impressions is, is body language. Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing about body language years and years and years ago. And, you know, I've always been, I don't know the research very well, but I've always been like slightly skeptical about its value. And I think your book has has done nothing to dampen that skepticism. So like, what do we know about, about body language? And in particular, you have one item in the book that, that says there's something better to do than watching people's body language. Yeah, this is work by Albert Breach, which is really, really interesting. Just basically the, the body language isn't a consistent predictor of lies. There are no consistent, like I said, there's no Rosetta Stone for body language because the issue is we never really know where it's coming from. Is the person shivering because they're nervous or are they shivering because they're cold? We don't know. We don't know contextually, like if they had a horrible day 
and that's why they're angry or because their legs are crossed. We, we don't have any kind of things. You know, body language, the specifically within a person, because the, the biggest issue with effectively using body language is if we have a baseline. Exactly. So if you don't know somebody, body language is pretty useless. But as I said, the Epley research, friends were higher. We could read friends better than we could read strangers. We could read spouses better. Part of that unconsciously is certainly we're picking up lessons as we go. But without a baseline, it's pretty much useless. And what's really critical, the point you raised, is we do have something better, and that is voice. If you can see someone, but you can't hear them, empathic accuracy drops off more than 50%. You know, But if we can hear someone, but we can't see them, empathic accuracy Boom. only drops off like 4%. So, Boom. So focus on the voice. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was super, super interesting. Um Follow your ears rather than your rather than your eyes. I think the point about baseline when we read body language is also interesting. Yeah. I tend to be a slightly fidgetier. Me too. You know. Me too. And if you know me, it's like okay, that's just how he is. Yeah. And but I can see how that can be and probably has been in my life misread as like oh this guy's really kind of fidgety. I wonder if he's really telling the truth or he's really uncomfortable. It's like I'm not uncomfortable in the least. I'm just. A little nuts. Um, so and that's my baseline. Um, but I think the point about voice is so I think baseline is a really good point for for body language. And and I think what you're also talking about, both body language and first impression in general, is be humble about how much you know and how accurate you are. Yeah. Uh, intellectual humility can go a very long way on that. The next big idea is sponsored by the Next Big Idea Club. That's right. The Next Big Idea is more than just a scintillating podcast with a debonair host. It's part of the coolest learning platform on the planet. Here's how it works. Every season, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, handpick dozens of the best new books. Then we partner with the authors of those books to create Book Bites. These are 12-minute audio summaries written and read by the authors themselves, and the only place you can find them is in the Next Big Idea app. And that's not all you'll find once you download it. Our app also has beautiful audio and video e-courses, ad-free versions of this podcast, bonus author conversations, and lots of other mind-expanding content. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Better yet, do it right now. Pause this recording, go to your app store, and search for Next Big Idea. Getting smarter has never been so easy. So let's bring us home with, I think, some, some of the most useful advice, at least for me personally here, is liars. Okay? So, so we've got, you know, first impressions. We've got body language. We've got detecting liars. First of all, there is just a boatload of lying going on out there. That, I mean, we, your numbers on, on the amount of lying were sort of disheartening to me. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's pretty crazy. Like all the stats on lying. Was, I literally had to cut that section down with the data. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of lying going on. You know, we, we lie the most to mom. Uh, I, 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 my assumption is that's largely to, so she doesn't worry. We lie to our spouses the least, but we tell them the biggest lies. Uh, so there's, well, you know, plenty of lying going on. And most of the advice we get is terrible, you know, is just <laughs> terrible. The, the, you know, the, the 
the polygraph doesn't work. It's it's and what was funny is it was actually developed in part by William uh, William Moulton Marston, who is the guy who developed uh, the DC Comics character Wonder Woman. And uh, the lasso of truth worked. The lie detector does not. Again, much like we talked about earlier, it's like somebody feeling stressed out, their heart, their blood pressure going up, their heart rate going up, sweating more. These are not necessarily correlated with lying. We, we, we don't know this. And if people can be stressed for many reasons, not the least of which, they're hooked up to a lie detector. You know, I mean, so it's, you know, that hasn't been valuable. What was, was really valuable was finding out that um, basically uh, after 9-11, uh, there was a lot of government research, you know, by social scientists to try and figure out, you know, for interrogation, for other purposes, what actually works. And this was really powerful to realize that the perspective of stress is not a good model for detecting lies. What is, is called cognitive load, which is that basically lying takes a lot more mental horsepower than we realize. You have to think about what, you have to think about the lie you're telling, you have to think about the truth, you have to think about what the other person's perception, you have to update that in real time, you have to make sure they're not catching on, that's a that's a lot for for your uh, for your processor to be doing, and the best way to detect lies is to further up the cognitive load. And there are a number of methods for doing that, but the the most accessible and usable of which was uh, to ask unanticipated questions. And what's really fun is I was reading this research and saw everything, and it's now used by airport screeners uh, at airports. And I was at a, I was going to a wedding in Prague in June and an airport screener came up to me and started asking me, so, uh, you know, where did you go while you were in Prague? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm on the other end of this research right now, which made me incredibly nervous, but I wasn't worried because nervous doesn't impose a lie. Anyway, point was right. they do use this. So it's really powerful to ask unanticipated questions because a liar cannot prepare for every question you would ask them. And they're going to have to think. When police officers were told, don't ask your police officers were told, don't ask yourself, does it seem like this person is lying? Ask yourself, does this person have to think hard? And just by asking just that changing question dramatically improved police officers' abilities to detect lies. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. So if you know, like I thought that was such useful advice. It's like, is the is the person having to think hard about what they're they're saying, um, and also surprising them with that unanticipated question. Uh, you have a good example in there, just to put it, make it a little bit more concrete about um, in the bar uh, IDs, IDs, yeah. and uh, yeah. IDs, and in, uh, in, in drinking. Tell us about that. Yeah. So if you were a bartender and someone came into the bar who was, you know, clearly underage, if you ask them how old are you, they're going to say twenty one. You know, that's rote. We all know, you know, what the proper thing, but. If you were to ask the person, what, you know, when were you born? What is your birthday? That's a very easy question for someone who's telling the truth, but someone who's lying is going to, have to do some math. So all of a sudden that creates the biggest kind of delta that creates the biggest change where here's a question that every person who's telling the truth can say quickly. And someone who didn't take the time to falsify the year they were born is, uh, uh, that's really powerful. Because they're, they're doing the math in their head. Yep. They are, to use your language here, you're making them think, you know, you, you say, oh, wow, they're thinking hard yeah. here. <laughs> uh, and that's a sign of, so so sweatiness, jitteriness uh, is not a sign of lying uh, necessarily. It could be, in fact, a very false signal, but but 
Are they thinking hard? I think that's so, 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 so useful. Um, so lots of useful stuff in this book. One last question for you, Eric. So you've, you now are the relationship guru here. Um, how, if at all, has this changed your own relationships, your own friendships or any romantic relationships or your connections with your family? I mean, the, the writing of it is the hard part in that sense because, oh God, I'm doing that wrong. This is like my my whole career these days is just reading, researching. Oh, I do that wrong. So that's the hard part. <laughs> you know, it's just it's a constant staggering list of all the things I'm doing incorrectly. Uh, but that said, afterwards, it's always a positive because I can try and improve. For me, it's like I'm making the time for my friends, making sure I'm staying in touch. And I have not been a paragon of vulnerability in the past. So just opening up about those things, it really makes a difference. You know, it really makes a difference when people know where you're coming from. They know what you're dealing with. They can help. It's amazing how poor people are at helping when they don't know what's wrong. <laughs> so it's made a difference. It's astonishing sometimes how bad people are at reading our minds. So it's just, it's amazing. Maybe that's the next book, but this book is a great book. Uh, this is uh, uh, Eric Barker, famous for Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the mammothly successful blog turn newsletter. Um, I think that he plays well with others, um, and that's the name of his book, Plays Well with Others, which is just chock-a-block with all kinds of great evidence-based uh, insights and tips on how to build a relationships. Uh, Eric, thank you. Thanks, Dan. That was author Eric Barker speaking with our curator, Daniel Pink. If you'd like to hear more from Eric, you can check out his previous appearance on this show. That episode is called Relationships. You can also try downloading the Next Big Idea app. There you can hear Eric share the five key insights from his book, Plays Well With Others, in just 12 minutes. And Eric is just one author among hundreds. Nowhere else on the planet can you hear folks like Walter Isaacson, Anne Lamott, Greg McEwen, and Arthur C. Brooks share the key insights from their new books directly with you. To get started, all you have to do is download the Next Big Idea app. If you enjoy this show and want to support us, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend. The second best thing is leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. We love getting your reviews. We read every single one, so keep them coming. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. We play well with the team at LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.